This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Bitcoin is this wild thing that has never existed and couldn't actually exist until we had the combination of these ideas with the technology, with, with the cloud, with the global internet, with all these people that, for whatever reason, ended up looking at this going, this is really exciting. And so now you have this network. Nothing like this has ever existed before. So the question is, what, what's the value of that? And I don't know. I, don't, I, I have a good imagination. I don't know what the right value should be placed on the most secure network in, in the history of humanity. And I also know that Bitcoin evolves, but slowly. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Empire. I am joined, per usual, by my co-host, Santiago, and a very special guest today, Eric Peters, the founder and CIO of One River Asset Management, uh, one of the leading institutional investment firms uh, at the forefront of digital assets, founded in 2013, maybe 2014. Eric can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, they uh, are very well known for many things uh, for leading, in, leading in the space, but one of the big things that got uh, one river on a lot of people's radars, including my own, was their $600 million uh, purchase of Bitcoin uh, back in, what was that, November of 2020, I want to say, Eric? Right around the election, right, yeah, if I remember exactly correctly? Right. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Just, just after, right after the election. Yeah. I think, I think that was the biggest Bitcoin, public Bitcoin purchase of all time. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Amazing. So, Eric, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to uh, great to be here. I yeah. appreciate the opportunity. It's great to have you. So we are going to dive really deep into just your current framework around Bitcoin, ETH, um, all things digital assets, how you're seeing things. Um, but actually, I'd love to start with the macro. Um, There's a recent interview that Stanley Druckenmiller did uh, with one of the Collison brothers. And he said, uh, Druckenmiller said that this is one of the hardest periods in time uh, that he's ever gone through as a, as a macro investor. I'd love to just get your framework for how you're seeing the macro right now. Sure. And uh, yes, I look, Stan's, uh, he is one of the greats. And uh, I agree. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenging time. And I think a statement like that, like, I, I don't know how, how Stan is, is doing in markets or specifically what he's up to at the moment, but uh, it's hard because it looks so different right now. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are no corollary periods to this. So um, I've been a student of, uh, of, uh, of market history throughout my career. I started in 89 as a pit trader, um, which is kind of an unlikely start given that my time horizon now is much longer. Uh, but uh, uh, I would say that throughout the entirety of my career, we've been in a, in a market and trading and economic and policy and geopolitical paradigm that has largely speaking been really consistent. And that that effectively came to an end uh, with the pandemic. And it was not so much that the pandemic flipped uh, flipped it. It's that we were we were kind of we had a, a number of very powerful um, mega macro trends that were driving us to a, to kind of a point of in a sense, high pressure or congestion, and it kind of it couldn't go any further, really. And so there was going to be some catalyst that was going to that was going to catapult us into a new policy direction. And uh, it just so happened that the that the pandemic was that catalyst. And it's it's just interesting. It's kind of almost like the way I don't know. I think I'm a pretty karmic person. It's it's almost the way you know, kind of life in the universe lined up to give us such 
you know, after such a long period of time to give us a catalyst that was so powerful to, to kind of propel us in a new direction. And what I mean by that is, so, and, I, and I, I'm guessing that Stan is kind of um, uh, thinking about this as well, is that you know, we, ha we had decades where basically uh, every time, we had decades of disinflation that were driven by a number of things, um, and not to go too deep into it, but you know, one of them was just demographic trends globally, one of them was globalization. So, you know, as as we opened up the world and we deepened supply chains all over the place, it just brought all these low cost workers into the global workforce and combination of aging in certain societies, particularly Japan at first. But then it, it kind of tr trickled over to Europe and then China and, and U.S. is actually in better shape um, demographically in terms of aging. But nevertheless, all these things kind of pushed um, inflation lower or drew inflation lower. And that allowed the central banks every time there was an economic disruption to ease aggressively because it didn't really produce significant runaway inflation, which had been the experience of the 1970s. And um, and so a lot of these trends drove us to a place where when we, we came to the pandemic, interest rates were really low. Inflation was really low. Um, unemployment was really low. Volatility was really low. There are these new policies like QE acted to suppress volatility, to suppress interest rates, to do all, you know, kind of distort markets to squeeze the last bit of stimulus out of that policy framework. And it didn't really work anymore. So you kind of knew, or we knew, and I think it was obvious, I'm sure Stan knew, that whenever the next big recession hit, there was going to there was going to need to be a big fiscal impulse. And that that fiscal impulse um, was going to was going to come at a time where some of these geopolitics around um, around supply chain uh, uh, deepening globally, you know, we're already kind of starting to reverse uh, and, you know, tensions between the U.S. and China. So all these things were going to hit and that would that would propel us into a dynamic where we had very aggressive monetary policy and fiscal policy in a world where globalization had crested already. And that was it was almost almost assuredly going to create a, a new inflationary paradigm. And but but then COVID hit and that that amplified all these forces. It just amplified them. So now we're in this wild new world that just doesn't look like anything that, that virtually anyone has traded through. You have to be a student of trading and economic history to recall what something like this looks like. And even then, it doesn't look exactly like the 70s. It just kind of rhymes with the 70s. So that's um, so for anyone who's trading now, you're kind of like, oh, my God, this is a really unfamiliar terrain. How do I, you know, how do I navigate? And um, I think there are some really good ways to navigate, by the way. And, and thankfully, we really have for our, our investors and clients. But it's tricky and it's tricky to do it, particularly at scale. So really big investors have an even harder time than smaller ones. I want to that's, that's a good segue. My question, which is how have you navigated this environment? I think like now people do like a postmortem and it becomes so it obviously it's hindsight, it's 2020, but I'm curious how, how you've been navigating this environment. Uh, how did you manage risk? Cause I think it's one of the hardest things to do in, in crypto. Yeah. So I guess for starters, we weren't managing crypto risk before as a, at a I, I traded personally, but we weren't managing it as a firm prior to November, 2020. And I'll talk about that, but um, you know, our positioning going into the pandemic was we expected a few things we expected, um, Whenever 
that economic and market cycle shifted. And remember, pre-pandemic, we were in the longest bull market in U.S. history and the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. We were at, we were in kind of rarefied territory, or you know, we were at, we were in thin air. Um, in and and yet, you know, when these things happen, most people are not positioned that way, right? Because you. If like if you're in the longest expansion of and the longest bull market in, in economic history, there probably aren't that many people leaning against it because they're probably bankrupt by the time that happens. So it's inevitable that you end up with all sorts of things going on in markets and bad behaviors and levered carry and vol selling and all these kind of things that people convince themselves will continue for at least the next quarter or something, but they'll be smart enough to get out. And so we we kind of our, our positioning was was pretty different. So, you know, we have we have products and we're positioned to be long volatility. We have a um, we've got a great alpha fund that's market neutral and truly we we really are market neutral and and also make sure that we kind of own tails. So we had competitors who literally lost 100 percent of their money in their quote unquote market neutral strategies. And we were flat in Q, Q1 of, of 2020, for instance. Um, I was disappointed we didn't make some money, but. You know, it is what it is. Um, and and we also have, um, you know, I'm a, a big believer that uh, in the environment that we have entered, that systematic trend following will be one of the most successful strategies out there. And that is and and for, you know, those who don't know what systematic trend following is, you kind of we all know what price trends are. And systematic trend following is just a it's a systematic way to position in the same direction as these medium to longer term trends. And then to the extent that you can do it across a wide universe of assets, you end up you know, creating a quite a robust strategy, which can make money in bull markets and bear markets um, and is not constrained to any particular asset class. And so I think that w- one of the things that was really interesting was that the last decade was the worst decade of trend following from a sharp ratio perspective for the last, say, 120 years. The second worst decade was the 1960s, which is a period that we studied quite a bit because some of the policy, I think, errors that made in the 60s contributed to the volatility and inflation of the 70s. And we thought the last decade had rhymed with the 1960s in certain ways. And there, and, and so when that came to an end, it was likely we'd have a much more volatile period and disruptive period. And trend following can capture that because if you think about it, what a trend is, like, why does it why does a price move from, from point A to point B or, or say from 1x to 3x or 2x or whatever the number is? It's because the future looks very different from today. And so if you have if you have a period ahead where you think that there are going to be a lot of changes in the world that people don't yet really comprehend very well and where guys like Stan Druckenmiller say this is a really hard time to trade, right? Why is it a hard time to trade in many respects? Because probably a lot of volatility, probably there's a lot of uncertainty about what that future could look like. So if you have a systematic way of capturing change, that should be a really good strategy. So we came we came into the pandemic with that type of positioning and did very well. I wanna, um, Eric, I want to try to tie some of this together and, t- and, and turn it into a question uh, actually just about the mm-hmm. future, because I know you have a very long term view on things. Basically, OK, so you're talking about COVID, right? Western government governments embarked on this new form of policy uh, stimulus, right? Issuing, and I think you've talked about this a lot, issuing this these unprecedented uh, quantities of bonds. And then what they would do is they would go buy 
buy that debt with money that their own central banks created. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like you are uh, studied history and your team studies economic history a lot. Uh, any, anyone who has studied any sort of economic history knows that this will eventually debase the currency, right? So it feels like we're going into this big inflationary period. But on the other side of that, you have these uh, deflationary things. Uh, long-term investing is really just an identification identification of these large macro trends and the two biggest trends of the last couple of decades, tech and tech advancements and deepening global trade, right? Two probably very deflationary things. So I'm curious just what, how you think about, uh, well, you know, we're going into this very inflationary period, but there are these deflationary, um, uh, factors that are pushing down on that. So like, what are the major macro trends that you're looking at over the next five, 10, 15 years? Yeah. Um, those things are true uh, in, in the sense that uh, I think, broadly speaking, deepening technology and expanding uh, expanding global trade and deepening global trade ha- tends to be deflationary. Um, it doesn't always have to be. So, for instance, it it could be. Let's just to play the thought ex- like a simple thought experiment. I just the first thing that comes to mind is let's say Uber. Right? You could say that there was a period of time where um, Uber was deflationary because there was a lot of money that flowed into Uber. They came up with a way to um, to basically take technology, um, package it in in a way that 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 grabbed all these um, idle resources, these cars and drivers, and gave them away to all of a sudden enter the labor force and kind of drive down the cost of public transport. Like, and by the way, I'm not an equity analyst. I don't I don't know all the details around, but like just use that as a concept, right? There then comes, I, I don't know about you, but when I take an Uber from the airport now, I, I don't know, I, I, I feel like I'm going to have to um, get student loans for my children to go to college. It's, it's like, so it's, it's egregious. I think that, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, right? <laughs> I, right. I came back from yeah. LaGuardia uh, the other day and it was almost $300. And, um, but that's you know, the joke, right? That all, that, that all of these platforms, Airbnb is much more expensive than hotels now, right? It's like, it feels like we basically had our lives subsidized for the last decade by VCs. And now those subsidies have gone away and that the cost of these platforms that we've basically gotten locked into are actually more expensive than what they replaced. Right. So yeah. I, I use that as just, a, I just use that to illustrate the point that, that some, and, and this is an important part of investing. And I try to do this all the time. I try to do it with my kids. I try to do it with my team. It's like, what are the things that we believe to be true that might not really be true? Like we should always be questioning that. Could It's about, you know, um, I love to follow what's ha- what happens in quantum um, mechanics, and I'm super excited about the CERN, um, you know, particle accelerator coming back on. Because like these are they're so cool because you're like looking at all these different things around the world, and we don't even know how the world really works and operates and exists. But if you if you asked 100 people, is technology deflationary? They'd be like, yeah, it's deflationary. It's like, okay, I don't know how much did your Uber ride cost? You're like, well, that that's not really technology. It's like. But isn't it kind of? I mean, it's you know. So uh, the the reason I the reason I say this is I think that um, I think that there are in all things in the world and in life and everything that we see around us there are cycles and it could be the weather it could be the seasons it could be technology it could be crypto it could be monetary policy it could be forms of government like it, at least in my worldview. All of these things are part of natural systems and natural systems go through cycles. So just because technology is 
is often deflationary doesn't mean that it needs to always be deflationary at a certain part of the cycle. So I would I would observe again without being an equity analyst that we are we appear to be in the part of the technology cycle where there have there have been really interesting uh, innovations that have happened with kind of technology and services and things like that. And um, and they're probably sufficiently mature that the period of being deflationary may actually turn into kind of mono, mono, kind of duopolies or monopolies that that create the less deflation or disinflation and maybe even material inflation. And it could even be that some of these technologies were so disruptive in non-economic sense because so much venture capital went in that I don't, again, I, like I haven't studied the, the taxi market, but could it be that there are a bunch of taxi companies that just said, okay, we just give up. And so now, you know, now you actually have less traditional supply. I don't know that that's true. All I know is that it costs a fortune for me to get an Uber from, you know, from LaGuardia. So anyhow, big picture, I would say that, um, cause you're, we're not talking about this specifically, but like big picture in terms of trends, I think that we're in, we're in a period um, where there is a policy choice to create inflation. And I think it's that is if there's one thing I I stress that people really, really kind of step back and consider, it's that inflation is not an accident. It is a policy choice. So we got to a point through this multi-decade cycle where not only uh debts, and a lot of them have been taken onto the government balance sheet, but huge debts have been accumulated, not just in the US, but globally, but also entitlements. So there has, there has been an enormous amount of promises made to the baby boom generation, who are the best advocates for themselves in the history of humanity. And they, they, have like, they basically, they, they figured out how to make sure that they were going to have the most wonderful retirement relative to the amount of work that they put into creating that that retirement that any generation has ever done. And so those like those bills are beginning to come due. And so when when governments globally look at their look at their economic model, they go, OK, well, Ooh, this is going to be pretty hard. You know, we got a lot of people retiring, we got a lot of people that want health care. We got a lot of people that want all these different things. And we have relatively speaking, fewer people coming up through the workforce. Um, by the way, all the old people own all the assets, really, which is kind of makes sense because they've worked for the longest, but they own all the housing. And guess what they put in the you know, they've, they've put in, uh, they've advocated for themselves. So it's hard to build new housing. So their houses are way too expensive because it's hard to make supply. Like all these things happen. And now we have all these poor young kids with student debt. How are they going to make enough money to give themselves a good life and also pay for all these old people? And it's, it, by the way, I think it's it's a complete and utter injustice generationally. And and so, the, but the government, by the way, now they sit there and they're like, okay, well, what do we do with that? And they're, they're not, by the way, they're not that many things that you can do with that. So they can choose to just default on their obligations to all the old people. They're not going to do that. They could default on their own debt. We've seen, you know, the, the U.S. government is not, is not going to do that. And we saw what happened with Lehman. Like No one has, at the policy and political level, no one has tolerance for defaults. So the only thing that you can do is maybe on the margin, you can try to renegotiate some of your long-term entitlements, and then you can debase the debts that you currently have. And hopefully some part of those future obligations by 
just creating greater nominal growth, which is an illusion. But and it's not an by the way, it's not an awesome solution. It's just the best of a number of difficult and poor choices. And it would be, by the way, I would suggest that as principled as probably both of you guys are and as I am, if we were actually in the seats of power and we're like, okay, well, here are our choices, you probably go, let's create a little inflation. Now it could get out of control and it's not what anyone wants, but you probably like given those choices, they're tough choices. And so that that's that is what's happening. So when you think about over the you know five, 10, 15 year period, I think that we are going to see periods like we're in now where the Fed goes, there's too much inflation and the president of the United States who, who just wanted inflation. Now he goes, there's too much inflation and everyone in a sense pretends like they want to bring it back down. And by the way, because there are cycles, there are going to be some fast inflation cycles that it goes up a long way, then it comes down a long way and then it goes back up a lot. These things will happen and it's all a little bit of a charade because the policy choice is clear, which is that, um, is that we are going to debase the currency, not in a while. We're not trying to create the Weimar Republic and society breaks down, but we need we need to rebalance the system. And this is a way to do it. And it has been done through history. And what you pray if you're the government is that while you're doing this, that the younger people like you guys, I'm less young, but hopefully people like me and certainly all the young people that are working their their you know butts off at our firm are going to do things that are truly innovative that create greater productive productivity in society and 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 so while governments are doing governments are not innovators and productivity enhancers but while they're debasing these few the, these existing debts and future obligations the younger people are, are creating greater productivity and by the way that's an optimistic path I think that that will happen, but I think it's going to be bumpy. Um, but but that's what I see, like looking 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That's kind of what I see. I want to go back to November of 2020 and just understand what was going through your through your head when you made the decision to make that purchase. Uh, I think it was $600 million of mostly BTC, some ETH, but largely BTC. Well. Yeah, sure. So this is, uh, I would add in the public record, it's just as a general matter, we don't talk about what what we do with clients, but all this is is in the public uh, domain at this stage. Um, so we have, a, um, we work very closely with our clients. We've, we always have as a firm. Um, I mentioned to you, you know, how we positioned coming into the pandemic and we had expected, you know, some form of, um, of debasement whenever the this next cycle had. And then, and then what we observed is like, wow, this is way bigger than we would have ever imagined in the sense that this policy response is we're going to run a fifth at the time, like we're going to run a 15% budget deficit in the largest economy in the world, fully funded more or less by the federal reserve. So, you know, effectively creating new money in a computer and then using it to buy debt and then, and then being spent throughout the economy. That's unbelievably powerful. That is debasement. And so the question is, well, what other opportunities are there? And so, um, one, you know, one of our, our largest clients shares the general worldview that, that we have, um, they're phenomenal firm, uh, they're British firm, they're led by a CIO who's one of the the uh, a fellow by the name of Henry Max. He's one of the greatest investment thinkers that I've ever met, and I've met you know all the greats or most of the greats. Um, and so that, that was something that we did together. Um, and uh, and the thought was that these assets are they're really poorly understood. 
at this stage. So you have this brand new concept of digital scarcity, which sounds like an oxymoron, really, you know, and, and in many respects, it is an oxymoron. But for the fact that that the, the network effects around, you know, a particular protocol or such and a particular asset is such that you actually can create scarcity of, you know, of Bitcoin, even though you can create millions of different versions of Bitcoin, you know, you can create this concept of digital scarcity. There is also a recognition that a lot of things that um, that made these assets seem difficult for institutions to touch were things that had to do with security, had to do with things like money laundering. All, but if when you looked at those a little bit more, you didn't have to look very closely. But if you if you dug into each one of those, what you discovered was it's a relatively new asset class, and just even in the the, the last few years leading up to that. You'd, you'd solved a lot of these problems. Like you, you'd solved the, mm-hmm. you'd solved the the institutional custody issue. So like Coinbase custody is just, you know, was very safe. Um, and all the money laundering concerns had just been. It's not that there were none. It's just that there were all sorts of things being developed that that meant that that was a much 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 smaller issue. Um, and so when you looked at it, you're like, well, what's going to happen here? And what our strong view and our client's strong view is what's going to happen here is that institutions are going to look around the world now that they've had to begin to adjust their mindset to the posi- to, to this new market environment. And they're going to go, well, what do we do here? Because typically what, it, what investors had done and have done for the last 30 years is they've bought a 60-40 portfolio, which means 60% equity, 40% fixed income, or some leveraged version of that. And they dressed it up with private equity, which is just an even more leveraged version of that, or private credit, which is just, a you know, all these things are really dressing up this very simple portfolio construct and adding layers and layers and layers of leverage to it. And in the new environment that we foresaw unfolding, or was at the time actually unfolding, bonds would not do a good job of of protecting that portfolio against market volatility. And so all of a sudden we thought there is a there is a serious shortage of very effective portfolio diversifiers in the marketplace and invest institutional investors once they discover what those things are they're going to clamor for them. Some of those things incidentally are long volatility strategies which we happen to run. Um, trend following strategies, which as I described, are good for that market environment. But then digital assets were like this really unique expression of that. Gold could be something that would do well in that environment as well, by the way, and commodities. And so these were all things that look like really interesting. The incredible thing about digital assets, by the way, was that not only should they theoretically do well in that environment, but they also have this unique optionality as this new technology platform that people don't really, most people don't really understand that well. Truth be told, I didn't understand it nearly as well then as I do now. This is going to change the world. I know that now, and we're taking part in that now. But at the time, it was kind of like, and you get that for free. And so we made that investment. And and by the way, like we crystallized over a billion, kind of a billion and a quarter of gains. We actually got out of all those trades and returned all of that capital um, over the next mm-hmm. nine months, um, yeah. because it just went so far so fast. Um, but that was our that was our big kind of initial entry. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to go to next. I mean, I think like obviously you timed it particularly well, where you bought 
pretty much at like 13 or, you know, when Bitcoin was, I believe at the time, like 13,000, 15,000, what your entry point was. But as you said, you know, went to 60,000. And, you know, that's one of the things that I've struggled with in this space, which is coming from a venture mindset, you know, you're sort of expecting this to be a 5, 10, 20 year trajectory to truly kind of change a lot of things that are wrong systemically with with the world. But the problem is crypto markets, uh, what you think can happen in 10 years happens in like three months or like six months. And managing risk is super difficult, especially when you're managing other people's mm-hmm. money. And so I'm curious, again, what was the decision to crystallize that trade? Because um, it sounds like you have a really long-term view on, on the space. Uh, and I guess perhaps a more precise question would be, at what point do you get back into the trade? Because it sounds like you, you believe in this. Your clients believe in this. You sort of exited because you know you saw it go up to 60000 You say, okay, perhaps it's prudent to take some risk off here. At what point do you get back in? So, um, yeah, so what I would say is what I've learned in markets is um, and uh, and certainly uh, certainly, you know, that the, our clients are extremely talented uh, investors and, and have good market sense as well. What you insert, what, what you observe in markets over um, over time is that there's a certain cadence to them. So it's not so much about levels of actual price because I don't know. Um, we did. We were buying ETH at around four hundred ish and Bitcoin at fifteen thousand or something like that. And so you know, if you make you double your money in in a very short period of time, it seems like an awful lot of money. But if and it is. But if um, you know, if if the market cadence is doesn't seem like it's like it's done its thing, and you don't, you're not seeing signs of just crazy euphoria. Then it it could go, you know, much further. I think what what seemed to be happening at the highs is that there was, you know, there were signs of the the types of signs of activities like people borrowing money, you know, very visibly to then go and buy it, and you know, buy in very visible ways to almost try to push prices higher in a way. Those are just like if you've been doing this for decades, it's rare that those that those types of behaviors end up being profitable. Maybe they can over ten years, or but you know, rarely over shorter time horizons. So you know, when you see really, really aggressive activities um, that are you know super public and making headlines, that tends to be the time that you want to reduce positions. And then you know, we're in we're in a period now where I don't think we're done with this correction. Like I'm not talking about Bitcoin prices. I think I'm just talking about like cadence of correction. We're in a period where stuff's breaking. I mean, it's really breaking, right? You know, you, you had Luna, you know, Luna was a disaster really. And now you, you know, you have these various lenders um, and uh you know, there's a lot of pain to come in in the sense. I, I think I think the vast majority of the price declines have already happened, but now we have the slog of it's like okay, how many like how many people out there misrepresented what they were doing in a space of you guys tell me are there twenty thousand assets out there? Um, you know, some of them are some of them are really high quality and will be worth a lot more money someday, and most of them will be worth zero and of the ones that will be worth zero, how many you know? How many people haven't really disclosed things the right way? How many how many lenders 
you know, not even because, not out of malice or even it's just it could be just out of naivete. They just couldn't have envisioned a world where they couldn't honor their obligations. It does matter what people's intent is. But for, for but when a market crashes and the market has crashed, that what is going to happen is the regulators who, who have been skeptical of a lot of these things now have to do the hard work of kind of grinding through this and seeing, um, you know, who are the bad actors and what were those actions that they took? And then how do we kind of cleanse that from ever happening again? And that's just a process. That's not a, that's not a, you know, a trade. That's a, that's just a, a, almost a process of, of mourning and cleansing that will, that will happen. And I think that will set all of that will set up this, this whole space for the next cycle. So I think this, this cycle's over like this, the cycle that we just lived through is over. What comes next will look very different not entirely different, but it like, for instance, if if you were an entrepreneur in this space, in my opinion, you should not be thinking about making a little tweak on something that, that made a lot of money in the last cycle. Make, well, we're going to make this teeny little improvement on it. And now it's going to be great. I think you're just you're looking in the wrong place. It's it's going to be a whole new suite of, of things that we're going to look that, that will be great coming out of the cycle. But that that's kind of how it works. So these are the times where you need to be. Um, you know, looking for things to buy at cheap levels and, um, and, you know, hanging back and then, and accumulating. And really, if you're an entrepreneur, these are the times that you're, you should be building and just, but build something different. All right, everyone, really excited to share a special update from our friends at Paraswap. Paraswap has been pushing the boundaries of what is possible with DeFi for years, and they just did it again. They just rolled out the first ever NFT peer-to-peer mobile trading app on iOS. That's right. They launched an iOS app for peer-to-peer NFT trading. You can buy and sell NFTs with any token. They have a secure non-custodial wallet. Uh, you've got a fiat on-ramp with zero fees at all. That's all at paraswap.io forward slash beta. Paraswap.io forward slash beta. It's a peer-to-peer NFT trading app on Apple. Pretty crazy thing in the iOS ecosystem. Imagine not using a platform that could literally save you thousands on gas. That's Paraswap. Go check out the app. Go check out the native wallet to store all of your crypto assets in one place. Go get your gas refunded. Go check them out. Go download the new Paraswap NFT trading app. Paraswap.io forward slash beta. Paraswap.io forward slash beta. Now let's get back to the show. Related to that, I'm curious if your allocation from a ratio perspective would change between Bitcoin and ETH if you were to do it today or at the time where you'd want to jump back in, given your learnings since 2020 and you've been observing it since before then. Um, I am curious if, if that ratio would change or would you, you know, look at perhaps other things beyond Bitcoin and ETH? Um, what we have done is, uh, and we're still, we, we do have investments in this space, by the way, and our clients have investments in the space a lot smaller than, than, you know, than it was, I mean, having returned that, that kind of capital. Um, but we, we have investments in this space. Um, we've, we've developed an index, an institutional index. So we thought that that was lacking. So what you find in traditional markets is indices, uh, uh, well-constructed institutional indices are great for a couple of reasons. Number one, for client, for clients or investors who want, 
you know, kind of dispassionate exposure to the beta of an asset class, an index is a is a great option. So that's why something like the S and P five hundred for people who don't want to sit around picking equities or don't trust that other people are really good at that, they just invest in that. And so we wanted to create something like that for uh, for digital assets. And so you know that that has thirteen assets in it right now. Um, it it is. Just it's dominated by Bitcoin and ETH. Um, although we have a size tilt index, which I think is the most interesting, which essentially kind of takes some of the market cap out of Bitcoin, the, the sizing and the market cap out of Bitcoin and ETH, and kind of pushes it just to, to the, you know, the other um, eleven assets in ways that I think um, will will outperform just a market cap weighted uh, index. And that index is dynamic, so it's not fixed. So you know, based on the criteria that we've set, um, it will it'll change over time, and and maybe someday it will have. It probably won't ever have five hundred, you know, assets, but it, it will have more than thirteen. And some of the things that are in it right now won't be in it, and uh, some of the things that probably have yet to even be developed or even thought about will be in it in the future. And so that's a great way to get exposure to the space. It's, it's a smart way of doing it. I, I obviously have exposure to that because it's our, one of our products. Um, but but yeah, I think that Bitcoin and, and ETH, if if you were just, um, if you wanted to take make a really kind of simple bet on this space, I think that there will be assets that will outperform both of those. But, we, but picking those is a very, very difficult thing and avoiding, you know, mishaps is, is also a hard thing. I'd, you know, I'd say that our institutional index avoided Luna, um, and you know that's a good thing. Um, we've avoided any of the kind of real DeFi types of problems. As a firm, we have we have thought, um, and I have thought that DeFi in its existing form is not really going to exist um, in in the major regulated jurisdictions. Meaning, kind of, you know. DeFi protocols where there's no real AML KYC are, mm-hmm. I, I don't think are long for the world in in all the major markets that matter, like the US and Europe and you name any of the developed markets with sophisticated regulatory regimes. I think that those are not going to exist. And um, and but I think we can talk later. I think there's some amazing things that will come out of that. And I think that I, I have great admiration for the DeFi founders and what they've developed. I think that version two, I, I shouldn't, I know, I know in, in crypto, people don't like talking about version two. I think that, you know, the second act will be more way, way bigger and way more exciting than the first act. Let me put that. But I, 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 I love disruptors. I love creative thinkers and entrepreneurs. And I, I, you know, a lot of these guys are amazing from my perspective. I just think that they they were right for a per- certain part of the cycle, and now we're in a new part of the cycle, and um, you know something something better will replace yep. it. Right? It definitely feels like regulation is is still necessary, and and I think it's a it's a, actually a positive catalyst because I mean how many institutions are haven't really even touched Bitcoin or ETH because they perceive you know intolerable uh, regulatory risk, you know, and I think as insofar as we get clarity, I think it will. Mm. You know, I think a lot of people have done the work over the last 10 years, five years, and want to add this to their basket as an asset class. Um, and so, you know, as soon as we get more clarity on the regulatory front, um, I think it's going to be super net positive for this space. Totally agree. Yeah. I'm curious, um, on the DeFi piece, just because that's where I spent a lot of 
my time when I was a Parify, just investing in, in DeFi. Um, is that something that you would, you think is something that you would be investing behind? Um, have you invested in DeFi protocols um, or just using DeFi protocols, you know, for lending, borrowing purposes or swapping purposes, like do something Uniswap or uh, is that something that, that is part of your strategy or you see it, um, you know, down the road? Yeah. So I spent a lot of time looking at all those um, and it just on a personal basis, very, very small transactions to understand how they work um, on a, just personally, not as a firm. Um, and I think they're, I think that they're all awesome. I like <laughs> really, uh, now I think that their use case is super, super narrow. And I almost think some of these, I mean, not Uniswap, but say Ave, I, I think some of these almost got created. Well, it's, yeah, I, I saw Stani speak. We were at a conference recently, you know, like, I think that they're trying to solve problems in this this really dynamic world. And and it's like, what do we do with these assets? And they're like, how can we earn yield on it? I think they're like, I think some of these things just developed um, with really creative minds and people who could put that into action in ways that's just phenomenal. But the reason that as an institution, um, we haven't, as an institutional asset manager, we haven't touched them is because I think that that I and our investors always want to know who's on, not who specifically is on the other side of the trade, but that the that the the person or the institution on the other side of the trade is not a, an illicit actor in any way, and you kind of can't really know that with those protocols, um, and so that's that my view has been i mean like we we don't we don't engage in any of these activities where you're kind of going to some offshore unregulated exchange and you're you know you're i don't know um we don't do anything in DeFi for those reasons and they're and they're the same reasons incidentally that i that i think that now that this cycle is ended the regulators just not going to let those those types of protocols um operate and and it's you know in some cases like they can't shut them down i'm not saying it won't operate in different jurisdictions in the world and i'm not saying that there will be no americans who do it but they'll probably find that they're on the wrong side of regulation potentially the wrong side of the law and our clients would not you know we we were very careful to make sure that we didn't do that for those reasons and and we protected our clients in the future because some of the things I think one of the things that is going to happen is that there have been a lot of people that have done that engaged in a lot of activities over the last few years and regulators they are you know they are not they are not ahead of the market but they they continue to move there's a slow moving river and there are a lot of people that engage in things that they they probably in the future will wish they hadn't engaged in and we were very cognizant of what some of those things could be. And so that's why we didn't operate. Also, they're just, they're, there were security risks. And, you know, you, you didn't, you could lose, sure, you could get really high rewards. But by the way, like you never get high rewards if you don't take any risk. Most people didn't really understand what all those risks are. Now, increasingly, you're starting to understand what some of those risks are. People at Celsius are, right, for instance. Um, but with different hacks, like the, it was just not clear that the, 
that the protocol risk was consistent with our risk tolerance or our client's tolerance. So that's why we stayed away. Um, Eric, it sounds like you really, you're, you're quite long on DeFi just from a personal belief that finance will get digitized, but maybe short on the current iterations of what DeFi looks like. So maybe I'd just ask you to extend that out and say like, so what does DeFi look like if it's not the current iterations of Aave, Compound, Uniswap, Maker, and you don't believe that maybe the current iterations of the JP Morgans and the bad banking experiment experiences with the Bank of America's and the Wells Fargo's, like where, it sounds like it's somewhere in the middle, like what does the future of, maybe, maybe the question is just like finance look like to you? So I think that, I think, you know, predicting the future is usually pretty hard. I think in this case, it's actually not that hard. Um, I think that what, what we have discovered from the time that the Bitcoin appeared is that um, that tokenized assets and, you know, right now they're predominantly just native digital assets, but tokenized assets can be traded very quickly, very securely um, with finality of settlement that's virtually instantaneous. And, you know, it, it Obviously, it depends, and I and I and I know we're still in the early stages of some of this. You can argue about like well, how how fast is it really, and how you know how much does it cost, and what what's the gas, and what's this, and what's that. But like basically, I think we we now all know, and I say we meaning you guys know, I know, but it's not just us. The regulators know, the people who run these banks know that we now have a new let's call it technology platform that allows for virtually instantaneous or instantaneous settlement that's final. And that is, and, and in, as you imagine what the future could look like, extremely cheap with the ability to do phenomenal reporting and track transactions in ways that, that from an AML KYC, from a anti-money laundering and know your client and get bad actors out of the system standpoint, all these things come together. And as a regulator, you look at that and you go, okay, so like, let's for a moment strip out the fact that almost everyone over the age of 50 right now spent most of their life hating Bitcoin and thinking that they were all, you know, drug dealers and things like that, who, who are involved, like take, take Bitcoin out of the equation or take any of the unsavory actors that, you know, may have been spokespeople for anything like take that out and just go, okay, if I told you that we could have instantaneous final settlement with the ability to understand transactions, you know, all the way back in time, and we could have incredibly good reporting and in a financial crisis, the regulators and counterparties could know who has what immediately. Would we or could we have a more robust financial system with less risk? It, it, what's the answer? And the answer is just unambiguously, yes, we can. Okay. Now, if we had a system like that, that was interoperable across assets, um, meaning the settlement system for real estate assets and leverage loans and equities and commodities and currencies and derivatives. Imagine that all of that could operate on the same ultimate platform and system. Would the efficiencies gleaned throughout the financial system be 
be, you know, allow the financial system to operate not only faster, but at a much lower cost than it does today? Is the answer to that yes or no? The answer is unambiguously yes. So now all of a sudden, if you if you just just like think of it through that lens, you now have the regulators who go um, and incidentally, like we're really close to them. Jake, the former SEC chair, leads our advisory council. So everything I'm talking about is, you know, not is is not kind of our hypothetical in the bubble. I was just look like it's, you know, these are well-informed statements that I'm making right now that are my own personal statements, but they're well-informed. Like if you look at that and you go, OK, well, if the regulators were to look at this technology suite and go, this helps us do our job better. It creates greater financial stability, which is a huge issue because the, the marketplace broke down in March of 2020. The marketplace broke down in, in 2008. And if we're going to have the deepest, most efficient, most important financial markets in the world here in the US, things can't break. And so we now have, so if the regulators go, that's going to help us understand where things are. It's going to prevent things from breaking in the future and more efficient. And then, and then all the settlement across this, you know, multiple asset classes in an interoperable way is is possible. Then you go to all the banking chiefs and you go, this is going to slash the costs of your operating business. You now, you basically have, and, and, and let me just add, the consumer looks at this and the consumer isn't going to care that his equity is a token or not a token or anything. He's, all he's going to understand is that his ability to get well-crafted, financial products at a cheaper level, um, probably in a more customized way because these efficiencies allow for all sorts of things to be combined in ways that are just impractical now. So the consumer has greater financial inclusion. You look at around, like everyone around the table wins. So that's why I say uh, that is what the future will look like. It's not, it's, that's not hard to predict. The only thing that's hard to predict is how soon will that happen? We happen to be taking very active role in making that happen as soon as possible. So I don't think it's going to, we're not talking about 20 years, by the way. So it's, it's going to start happening relatively soon. And that's super exciting. So that's, I think that's what things look like. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I think that's a really good framework to look at it uh, through. And it seems like you think that maybe there's going to be a regulatory unlock for DeFi. Um, but it feels like that usually isn't actually how it works. Like when I think back to Bitcoin, everyone's like, okay, the regulation needs to come around it. There needs to be an ETF. But really what it was, uh, was Paul Tudor Jones, I feel like in July of 2020 or June of 2020, you remember he, co- he goes on CNBC or he comes, fat Bitcoin is the fastest horse in the race. And what that did is it basically took away the career risk, meaning any portfolio manager in the world at any hedge fund in the world can now say, PTJ is doing it. I'm doing it too. What is the what does that moment look like for DeFi? I don't think it'll be the same in DeFi. Um, I, I think your your point is a very good point, and I agree. You know, Paul is a personal hero to me, and in, in a lot of ways, certainly as a as a trader, and and I've always looked up to him. And so whenever he speaks, is you know, he's got great insights and great instincts, and and I think you're exactly right. I think what that did, by the way, is it took out career risk for traders at hedge funds. It did not remove the career risk for portfolio managers and CIOs at large pension plans um, right. and things like that. But it was an important step because the first, the this is a unique asset in that started with retail and then it went to hedge funds and then it eventually get to the 
and asset owners. And it usually doesn't go, it kind of usually goes in a, a different yeah. order there. Um, but I think that the moment, I, I think that we won't have a similar kind of moment in DeFi that just breaks some crazy log jam. I think that it's going to happen. And the bet that we're making is going to happen working in conjunction with, with regulators. Because really what you're talking about with DeFi is you're talking about bringing buyers and sellers, lenders and borrowers together in an efficient way. And I think that the, the early protocols brought them together in a completely anonymous way. And that at, just at its core, that's not going to work. It can't be, um, it can't be anonymous. It, 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 can be, it can be private um, and it will need to be private because we can't have a world where if BlackRock's doing something, JP Morgan understands exactly what it is and they start front running. Like it can't, it won't be that, but it'll be, I think that it will be by bringing the regulators on board and saying, this is a more efficient way of doing it. And we're going to, sh- and, and this is our approach. We're going to, we're going to show you how and why this works in this particular market and get you comfortable there working only with institutions. And then once, once they are comfortable and they see that, you know, you, you, you have more efficient transactions, you have instantaneous and final settlement. It, all the AML KYC works. There are a broad range of, of different partners that, uh, that agree that this is in a sense, a good meeting place and that they see that it works for this asset and like, okay, well that, that works. And then it'll expand out to another asset and then, um, or another market. And then what you'll eventually see is once once you get a little momentum behind that, it creates a forcing function, which is that it forces all the participants to make sure that they have the ability to settle these things, to custody these things, to risk manage these, you know, these tokenized assets, whatever they may be, um, to report them, to deal with the tax issues, to deal with 24, uh, 7, 365 trading like but once you once a bank builds that out think about think about how the way banks work you got and this is not to this is not to knock anyone who works in kind of traditional operations group but let's say you spent your career building out a, a traditional operations for one of the the big banks and you have god knows how many people working for you and you built all these systems it's like been your life's work in many respects and then these other guys come along and say most of the people and most of the stuff that you have is just is unnecessary. Um, and you, you know, you're going to look for the eight different reasons why this new technology may have weaknesses and may not be the right thing. And ultimate, but ultimately, once you have a guy who's running that at a bank and has had to do it because you have some, you have these DeFi protocol that that you know that are this different, you know, this newer version and this new stage of the cycle, then you actually have an advocate for both. And then the CEO gets to litigate, you know, who has the stronger voice. And if this guy has the better technology and the cheaper cost, it's going to change quickly. And so that, I think the aha moment will be when you get a few of those things happening and you get the first technology rails built out. Because once that happens, then it's, it, that's like, that's your Peter Thiel zero to one Yep. Uh, step right. Once you get once you get to one, it's going to go fast. Yeah, I want to actually go back to Bitcoin, um, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of folks who have spent a lot of time in crypto uh, maybe have moved away from Bitcoin. They move on to ETH. From ETH, they push into DeFi. 
But I'm reading between the lines and I still feel like you think that Bitcoin is one of the most, actually, I remember you said this, I think it was to Ted Seides in maybe 2020, Bitcoin is the most interesting trade that you've seen in 30 years. So I think maybe a two-part question, A, I'm curious if if you still feel like Bitcoin is that that quote unquote most interesting trade that you've seen in your career. And then B, I'm curious about just your framework for how you're seeing Bitcoin, right? I think the narrative around Bitcoin almost changes every couple of years. It started as like money. Uh, so I'm curious if you see it as like an inflation hedge, a digital gold, internet native money, non-censorable money. Uh, I just would love to hear your framework around Bitcoin. Yeah, it's uh, it, uh, it was and remains the most interesting trade of my career. Um, we obviously have been in and, you know, in and out of it in size. Um, I, I, so I'd say that I think that the right way of looking at Bitcoin um, in the most conservative way is it is a store of value. Um, obviously, it's a volatile one because it's it's still in its early stages. Um, and so in its most conservative sense, I think that's what it is. Well, that is what it is. It's a store of value. And and I think that the whole world will become digitized. So I, I don't think, let, let's put it this way. I, I don't have a thousand year time horizon, but I'm just going to say like in a thousand years, people are not going to be lugging gold around, you know, around the world or around the universe or whatever is, if we're still around, that that's not happening. There will be digital stores of value um, if in fact we even have a societal structure and system where people even even need to store value and we don't we just don't it's just too far out to know but at some point along that path I think that you know people of of your generation and the, and the, and like your kids someday the notion that they're going to be digging up gold and it just to store value when they are when they've grown up in a in a true digital world and there uh, there is a network effect around a pro, a protocol or multiple protocols that that represent sufficient scarcity that they can have confidence that if they you know if they put their value I'm going to say money if they put their if they exchange their work for or they exchange other ownership of something for this particular thing, it should hold value. I think that that's what I think Bitcoin has has really won that. And uh, and so I, so in that sense, it's the most conservative way of looking at it is the store of value. And I think it will be worth a lot more money over time because what everything I just described about how I think assets get tokenized and finance moves to this tokenized world. If you think about what that future looks like, it it will mean that every financial institution will have built digital custody, digital trading rails, digital systems across the board for all for tokenized real estate, tokenized currencies, tokenized equities, tokenized everything, right? And what they will and then all of their customers will have will have uh, digital wallets. Right. And so right now, not that many people really have digital wallets, not that many people even know uh, how to exchange fiat for a tokenized asset or anything. It, we're probably not more than 10 years away from virtually every person in the world having the infrastructure that allows them to buy Bitcoin or ETH or anything else. And so the what's exciting to me about the value of these assets is 
in that world, do you really think Bitcoin's going to be worth less than it is today? Like we've just had a historic leverage wipeout. I don't think so. I mean, I think the probability of that is close to close to zero, that it's going to be worth less than it is now. I think it'll be worth way more. So that's a trade, right? I'd say that that's a that's a, a longer term trade. And that's and, and so that that's how I see it. Now, what I would also suggest, and and this is kind of the this is why I think no one should ever really be short this asset, is I think that Bitcoin is already the most secure network in the history of humanity. And some people might scoff at that because they go, well, the US dollar is because the US dollar, um, for instance, you know, is backed by the one of the greatest nuclear arsenals and this naval fleet and rule of law and economy. And I, I agree that do- the dollar is a great asset, but it's still controlled by the US government. And I am not anti-government in any way. But my point is that it actually is controlled by by a group or a system or an entity that could choose to devalue it in some way. Bitcoin is this wild thing that has never existed and couldn't actually exist until we had the combination of these ideas with the technology, with with the cloud, with the global internet, with all these people that for whatever reason ended up looking at this going, this is really exciting. And so now you have this network. Nothing like this has ever existed before. So the question is, what what's the value of that? And I don't know. I don't I, I have a good imagination. I don't know what the right value should be placed on the most secure network in, in the history of humanity. And I also know that Bitcoin evolves, but slowly. And so if you take a long view on it, could it be? that over the next 20, 30, 50 years, I don't know, Bitcoin, maybe less time, Bitcoin Bitcoin becomes this, this not only a store of value, but a network that is used in all sorts of ways that we can't even yet imagine as this security, as this highly secure network that other things plug into. Kind of like people look at Ethereum right now. Like, could it be that Bitcoin ends up actually being the ultimate winner there? It's possible, and and so if you're if you're kind of short that, I think that you're you really are short human creativity, imagination. You're short all the things that you historically the people who've shorted those are bankrupt, and you never hear about them. For, <laughs> like, they don't make the history books. Um, so I, I just I think that you. That's why. You should never be short. Like maybe for sure you make some money on a trade, but you should never yeah. be short that kind of thing. With Ethereum, you know, like you might be like Ethereum might might be one of the great winners. I would bet that it would, but it might not be. And it's going to be proof of stake. And there will only be one real proof of work network, I, I believe, because it's so energy intensive and it'll be Bitcoin. And then we just don't know what it'll be worth. Um, so that's how I look at it. So the ultimate question, look, I hate when people ask me for price predictions, but going back to a question that I asked earlier is at what point do we jump? But, but I'm but about to because to. I get yeah. to ask the questions while I'm on the podcast. <laughs> uh, and so I am curious, like at what point do you do you put back uh, risk and what do you think, what do you need to see, uh, you know, from the Fed, from macro, from just pain in the markets to really jump back in and size and put risk back on? Because to me, every, everyone that I talk to is everyone's just sort of like, look, I'm going to enjoy the summer and not do anything and just observe because uh, the... There's, I don't feel like I'm getting paid enough to take on risk at this point. So I'm curious to get your thoughts. Yeah. Um, 
I don't like to make price predictions either. I'll, so I'll point a few things out and just tell you my framework for thinking about it. So I told you earlier that, you know, when, when people are borrowing a lot of money and making a lot of noise about how they're, they're buying stuff, you should be selling. And when stuff is breaking and fed is doing quantitative easing or quantitative tightening and, um, you know, markets are under a lot of stress. Those are the, the area, those are the times just cadence wise to take price out of it. Like those are, if you just, if you never even saw price and all you saw, all you got to see, if you, you know, if, if, if you were denied price and all you got to see was cadence in terms of that type of news flow and chatter, you're, you're in the zone where you should be, um, you should be accumulating. And, and the period that I described was one where, you should be selling and that will hold into the, that will hold into as long as there are, or that, that framework will hold as long as there are markets that human beings, uh, interact with. Um, so we're in, we're in that zone. I would say the things that, um, the things that, uh, concern me still about the market. And I don't know how to weight these is that, um, I think that there are, I think that lower prices could still push some people to have to sell. And that's it, usually markets get to a point where that's not the case. And they never get to the point where there literally is not one person left in the world that a lower price wouldn't force to sell. But broadly speaking, it gets, you know, markets usually get to that, that point. So if you look at, say, what the miners, are, what the Bitcoin miners are doing, like these guys have been having to blow out position, blow out their Bitcoin holdings because they cannot get funding. I'm, I, I'm exaggerating it. It's, it's becoming extremely expensive for miners or in some cases impossible to get them to to get the money that they need. And so they are having to sell Bitcoin. So we're still in a dynamic where I think the macro is actually starting to improve for Bitcoin, but we still have residual uh, businesses and traders who got themselves over levered or were too optimistic or have weak business models and they have to sell their collateral and or things need to get liquidated. So we're in kind of this, I think around this 20,000 level, we're in this kind of balancing area here. So I expect there to be chop and volatility. I think that, I think that it is unlikely that, um, that the Fed is going to hike rates, return to a normal, um, normal, there's no such thing as normal in finance, return to the economic environment that we were in for the last 30 years. Like that is, in my opinion, not happening. The Fed is hiking rates right now. They're way behind the curve. They, I think that the economy will weaken. Inflation will come off hard. Everyone's going to kind of panic again. They're going to, they're going to transition to a, uh, an easing cycle or they're going to stop hiking. And I think that Bitcoin, all else equal, will bottom before, before that actually happens. So if you think about what Bitcoin did, it anticipated this period of monetary debasement exceedingly well. And it got, it got way ahead of itself into the highs. And then it rolled over before the Fed started quantitative tightening or even tightening or even really talking about tightening. 
And so it will it will start working its way higher um, before the Fed exits this policy. And that process could be happening somewhere now. If you look at what the futures prices are predicting, uh, you know, the market's kind of saying the Fed's going to be using some rates next year. So um, so Bitcoin will I think Bitcoin will bottom before that. But then it, but it also then has to exhaust Sorry, all of sure. all of the 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 kind of crappy positions that people still have on because of their business models and things I just described. So we're in that process, probably, probably sloppy. But if if as as your as your investment advisor and I'm not your investment advisor, but like if I were advising my own self on how to trade, I would say, yeah, you should have been selling back then. And yeah, you should be accumulating in here. And yeah, you should be willing. You should you should size it so that you could take plenty of downside in case like one of these guys needs to get blown out on a day below 7,000 or 10,000 or like it, anything can happen in markets. There is no buyer or lender of last resort in this market. It, it, I love these markets. They're, they're fiercely um, real and, un, you know, unregulated. I don't mean in the, in the bad sense. I just mean like th- these are real free markets. This is probably like what trading equities was like in the late 1800s and if, and and it's pretty awesome, and it's, it's harrowing. It's, 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 <laughs> like awesome. it's ruthless. Yeah, it's yeah. A sav- it's yeah. A savage so, yeah. so you know, be prepared for anything. <laughs> but like, you know, do, do, would I really care if we had a if we had a, a crazy spike down there and you blew people out? To be like, oh my god, that is an awesome signal because now I actually am I am going to deploy a lot of capital if I see something like that. Um, but I, you know, like we've seen stress, but we haven't seen that insane stress. Um, we might not, by the way, you don't always have, you don't yeah. always have it. If, if I see it, I'll be like, okay, we're clean and we're off to the races again. Yeah. Eric, I want to start to wrap it up actually, just with a thought experiment for you. Um, yeah. I know you think on more of a five to 10 year horizon, but I want to maybe take it into like a two year horizon, uh, mm-hmm. thinking about actually the election. So here, here's a, here's a potential future for you. There is, uh, things look, things look pretty crappy right now, right? We've got like, we've got a war in Ukraine, uh, we've got gas prices at five bucks. We've got the Fed just raised interest rates higher than they have in like 28 years. A potential future looks like the Fed is basically fighting inflation until November of 2020, uh, November of 2022. Uh, and they are that it's all hands on deck for inflation. The Dems looks like they might not do too well in the elections, which kind of sets up this like lame duck uh, two year stint for Biden, in which case all hands on deck for the Dems to basically fight for the 2024 presidential elections, in which case they basically start supporting any policy uh, that helps put money back into Americans' pockets. So the easiest thing to do there would be basically turn the money printer back on, which would potentially continue inflation. And basically that seems like it could wrap out this massive 80 year debt cycle. And that, that is like the, the end period of the last sentence of the book of the 80 year debt cycle. Agree, disagree, like that future. Don't like that future. What, what do you, what do you think about that take? I, uh, I think that, I think that this period is not going to be compressed into the next, uh, couple of years. I think it's going to be stretched out over the next decade. So when you look, mm. when you look at these periods and, and, and I'll, I'll say that there's a tendency, um, and I had the stronger tendency when I was probably your age, I don't know exactly how old you are, but you're 
at least a few years old, 14. younger than I am. Oh. <laughs> 14. <yeah. laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I think I know where you're going with this. You <laughs> tendency no, like, to want to make predictions and try to. No, 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 okay. no, no. I, like our, to a degree, num- number one, it's fun. Number two, it's important when you think about trading investing to, to contemplate a whole range of, of possible futures and, and then assign probabilities to them. And so that's the smart approach to, to doing. So uh, what, what I'm saying is, is particularly when I was younger, so I'm 55. So when I was younger, I tended to. I, I tended to think about things as happening a lot faster than they tend to happen. And I think mm-hmm. it's just because you care about this. So like you care a lot about Bitcoin or digital assets. And, and so you, you, you spend all this mental energy honing in on something. And, and sometimes you see things, you'll see things that seem obvious. And so therefore your brain tends to compress the time that that will happen. But the reality is the world is this like, big, you know, that has these big gears that grind over time. Some change happens really fast, like the pandemic, and it's incredibly disruptive for, for people and people struggle to process rapid change. It's throughout like in, in any in kind of I wrote a piece a few weeks ago just about survival and um, there's a great book on survival that, uh, that I'd, I'd, I'd recommend, uh, it's called deep survival and it just shows like how vulnerable people are to rapid change. So you get lost in the woods. A lot of people just die in the first few days because they just can't, they literally, their, their brain can't <laughs> handle the fact that they just, um, that they got lost and they're just disoriented. So there's this, you, you have to be careful about kind of your time horizons when you think about things. What, if you, if you kind of dispassionately step back and say, okay, I think that a political decision has been made to um, debase the currency, and it's a pretty it's a pretty good choice relative to the other ones. Then then it allows you to step back, take a deep breath, and go, okay, if that choice has been made, have there been other periods in history where choices like that have been made? And the answer is yes. And and then, well, how long do they tend to, to take to play out? They can they can take twenty years. By the way, they they don't they don't tend to happen in two years. And, and so I think what we need to be prepared for is, is if you do the work and you kind of put things in, politi- in, in proper perspective and you go, do I think that this decision has been made because it's the least bad of all the potential decisions? If the answer is yes, which you know that that is my, my strong belief, then you go, this is going to happen over a long period of time. So, you know, you could be right in terms of that political dynamic. You could be wrong. But if, you know, if you're trying to trade the political cycle, that's a pretty tough thing to trade. If you get if you get Republicans in, then not a whole lot's going to happen. And, um, you know, but if Republicans don't win, then Dems could throw a lot of money. Like there are a lot of things right. that could happen here. Um, but I, I yeah, I would I would caution in thinking it's going to happen really quickly. Um, and the big inflations that have happened historically tend to happen in a short period of time. But they also correlate to economic systems that are deeply broken. Our system right now is stressed. Supply chains are stressed, but the economic system has not collapsed. So it is it is highly improbable that we have some type of wild short term inflation. But we could have we could have a period of chronic inflation between, say, at the lows 
on a spike down 3% at the highs, 12%, let's just say, and volatile over a period of the next decade. And when you look back in a decade, you go, wow, my dollar is worth a lot less now than it was, than, you know, it was back then. I think it's likely that that's kind of what, what this period looks like. Yeah. I think no one knows what it's going to look like, but one thing is for certain, it feels like we're going through some massive paradigm shifts right now. And so Eric, this is uh, this has been a pleasure. It's been really helpful, I think for me and just, uh, I think hopefully the listeners and I'm sure Santiago as well, just hearing your thoughts on everything that's going on, both in the markets today, but the bigger five, 10, 20 year framework. So uh, I appreciate you coming on. I'm curious if there's anything else you want to share or if not, we can wrap it up. No, that's great. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and it's great to uh, chat with you guys. Fun, fun discussion. And, uh, let's revisit yeah, let's, this. Uh, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Let's, was, let's get back together in 20 years and say, we'll replay this well, yeah. and just well, see well, how embarrassed we are. I mean, I guess yeah. like if you're not embarrassed what you said, like 10, 15, it's like looking at an old picture of yours and saying, my God, what was I thinking back then? And so that, that just shows you that you made progress. Um, Santiago, you don't no, want to see what else happens. I mean, you're still, you're, you're, you're still that, wearing preppy really shirt. <laughs> Anyways, um, no, Eric, I guess like a last question, just out of curiosity, you have years of experience ahead of us. What would you tell if you were to go back, like your young trader self? I mean, if you were to go, go back and say, gosh, I wish I knew that much earlier in my career as an investor, what would that be? And you, I think you mentioned a, a, a bit of that, like just like slowing down, understand how the world works, but maybe something else that you can offer us. So that's a, I, I, uh, no one's asked that question, but I really like that question um, because it gets to the, it gets, gets to the heart of, of trading and investing, I would, I would say, um, because you're asking me as a 55 year old and I started in 89. So I don't even know how old I was, you know, I'm right out of college. So I would say that um, and, and this is reflected in kind of book recommendations I make for people. So when young, when young traders come and say, so, okay, so what should I read? And they're expecting to read, I don't know, market wizards or this or that. And I, I'll give them, I'll give them survival books, really. Um, I'll give them, you know, you should, you should read about Shackleton, uh, Endurance. Endurance I was going to recommend that yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Into, you mentioned deep you survival, should, you know, but yeah. Yeah. Deep survival. You should read Into the Land of White Death. You should read Moby Dick. I I, I tell people and and like and why and it's because what I've seen over the course of my career is that most people really fail in this pursuit and what often happens is people survive for people rather thrive for a period of time and then something changes either in their own psyche or they start managing too much money relative to their ability or the cycle changes or something and then they and then they they don't succeed or they lose a ton of money or they they become so enamored with their own success and a lot of that tends to be cycle driven like they just caught the right part of a cycle and they and they they did a levered carry type strategy. That's a lot of what you just seen in DeFi blow up and certainly these, these business models. And I, I just look at them at this stage, just like I was talking about market cadence and like the people who engage in those activities, like they're definitely going to blow up someday. I don't know if it'll be the next month or something, but they'll definitely blow up. Just like the people who are buying in this kind of environment, they're going to be the ones who actually do well if they have the discipline to be selling in another environment. And I think that this is it. Investing and trading is such a painful pursuit and 
my in my business philosophy, and, and it applies to our business itself. I talk to our team about this a lot, but also our investments. So just not only our firm, but investments is is if you're dead, nothing good can happen to you. Nothing. You have to remember that. Like if you're dead, you're dead. If you're alive, you at least can get lucky. Even if you're not good, you can get lucky. But if you are good and you're disciplined and you you manage to survive and protect capital, even if you haven't been the best performer, if you have that discipline, you you will have wonderful opportunities in the future. And they just keep coming. Like people always think, oh my God, I have to make all my money right now. It is not true. It is like, I mean, look at look at us. We never had made a, a we'd never invested institutionally in digital assets. And, you know, we made a billion and a quarter inside of a year on a $600 million trade. Like there, there are new things that come along and opportunities, but you have to survive to be able to get there. And you have to, you know, you have to run a tight ship and that's, it starts with the internal. And so when you read about Moby Dick and you read about the obsession um, that Captain Ahab, you know, had, it's like, you see that, you you could point you could point out a few Captain Ahabs. I won't name them in you know in the crypto markets over the last two years. And if I name them and you name them, they probably have pretty good overlap. Like they because it's that personality type and it's that lack of of kind of restraint and discipline. And so I think the earlier you can kind of you can kind of read those things and try to internalize them. Not just as these stories, but what they reflect in terms of human nature, the better off you'll be. And and then you can kind of keep your eyes open and stay humble and, you, you know, you'll get there. It's just it's it's a long race. It's not it's not, it's not a sprint. Stay in, stay in the game. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll certainly yeah. love to host you and let's all survive and everyone listening, just survive. <laughs> and uh, we'll have to, we'll have to reach in this excellent pod, uh, you know, maybe in a year or, uh, or, you know, six, nine months, but it's been a true pleasure, Erica. I really appreciate yeah. your thoughts and I'm sure your listeners will too. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. You guys do great work and I, I really appreciate being uh, invited to join you here. So thank you. Thanks, Eric. All right. See ya.